Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A horrifying situation is uncovered in Ukraine as mass graves and executed people are discovered in the town of Busha. It's brought anger and condemnation from around the world. This guy is brutal and what's happening in Busha is outrageous. And the United Nations warns it's now or never to avoid a climate catastrophe as it releases a damning report on how to halt global warming. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. begin tonight with scenes we thought were resigned to history. The war in Ukraine has shocked us all with its brutality. But in the last 24 hours, video laid bare just how shocking it is. A word of warning, you may find the pictures we're about to show distressing. This is the town of Busha. Just six weeks ago, it was a prosperous suburb in the capital of Kyiv. Now, dead bodies lay strewn across the street, some with their hands tied behind their backs. Mass graves have been found with reports from officials that 400 people have been killed. President Zelensky visited the town earlier today and called what happened there a genocide. It's war crimes that will be recognized as genocide by the world. You are here and you see what has happened. We know about thousands of killed and tortured people with cut limbs, about raped women and killed children. I think that it's more than. This is genocide. Well, Russia says the killings were staged to sully its name. US President Joe Biden didn't mince his words when talking about the atrocities and called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter is so it happened in Vukic. This warrants him he is a war criminal. But we have to gather the information. We have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue the fight and we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial this guy is brutal and what's happening in Bucha is outrageous and everyone's seen it well i've been speaking to kira rudik a ukrainian mp who's visited the town of Bucha over the last few days and i began by asking her just what she saw hello thank you so much for having me so I have seen mass graves. I have never seen so many dead bodies before. I have seen bodies of people with uh, hands tied behind their backs. Sometimes it was the families killed and sometimes it were people who died alone. I have talked to the priests who were gathering those bodies and making sure that they will be buried I have talked to people who came 
to get some humanitarian aid and who were telling us firsthand of what happened. I have talked to women who were raped by Russian soldiers with their husband be being killed right there and children who had to watch it. I have talked to mothers whose children died of pneumonia because they were at the basement for 39 days, afraid to get out. And all those people, they were not armed, they were not part of the resistance, they were civilians. They just wanted to survive the war and they were killed just because they existed. Themselves, their animals, the pets, burned alive, or dead and burned. We have seen three bodies of women who were raped and then uh, they tried to get rid of the bodies and they tried to burn it and then ride over them by a tank. I have seen a house that was burned to the ground where it was written on the fence, we are peaceful people. Could you believe this? We are peaceful people, but it didn't help them because Russians were shooting exactly at the peaceful people. And what do you think, Kira, when you, when you hear about, when we've seen the Russian denial of this, officials claiming um, that the dead bodies, the images that, that have been seen, they are in fact staged. It's all part of a campaign to gain more support from the West. What, what do you think when you hear that? I think this is one of the ways of how Russians act, calling white black and black white and calling the death, the life and the war, the peace. This is not the first time we see it. And this is exactly why on the first day of liberation of Bucha, I made sure that all the international journalists from all the respectable media are able to get in there, are able to film and to share with the world what is going on there, to, to, to show the truth. And you, now you're able to see the truth. It is impossible that Ukraine would, would burn our houses, would use the weaponry that we even don't possess to shoot at the houses and at the people from the air. It is impossible that we, we will uh, go over our own people with the tanks or kill our own people. We are not Russians, we don't do this. Uh, critically, Kira, you mentioned there about journalists coming in and seeing firsthand what's happened. What about um, investigators, independent investigators? How soon do you believe that could happen? We know the UN has been calling for it. You yourself um, say so you're trying to gather evidence, but key to all this is gathering evidence, isn't it? Right, and this is why today we were again with the local commission and we would need to have the International Commission coming in and witnessing it. However, I have a question to you. Once the, once the Commission finishes, uh, then what? Like, what would happen then? I am expecting that there will be a trial and Putin will face the trial. But right now, what we see from the world leaders is the hesitance on getting into it and making sure that we get enough weaponry or that uh, Russian and uh, oil and gas will stop being purchased around the world. They are still thinking that it will go away, but it will not. And I want to let you know that right now, while we are talking, 
There are people who are still suffering at the occupied territories, and I cannot even imagine what we will see when we will liberate those cities. What we will see in Mariupol, how many horrors and crimes that are happening right, right now there. So isn't it a reason to give us the weapons that we need? Isn't it a reason to stop buying Russian gas and oil by the countries? This is my question. Because I do believe in the commission and, and I do believe in trials and I will, will make sure that every single Russian soldiers will get their justice this way or another way. But what I'm expecting is for the world leaders to step up to finally see what's happening in Ukraine and start being active and start except of condemning actually giving us the heavy weaponry that we need to push them back from our towns. Because when on the day 40 of war, we are asking for the same thing that on the day one, then I, I feel so sorry for all my people that are dying because they are dying for no reason right now. Because they are dying to prove to the, to the uh, peoples of the world that these things are happening. And I know, Kira, you were in Busha yesterday and today, and you will be going to other liberated towns um, tomorrow. Uh, do take care. Thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Kira Rudik, a Ukrainian MP who has joined us live tonight from Kyiv. Well, joining me for more on this is Harry McGee, political correspondent with the Irish Times, Paul McAuliffe, a TD with Fianna Fáil, Louise O'Reilly, TD from Sinn Féin, and Donna back on, Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government at DCU. Um, to come to you first, Donna on that, uh, Kira Rudik explaining how she was in uh, the town of Busha, how she was there with a number of political leaders today um, and indeed yesterday, seeing those images but seeing them firsthand, um, the description she's given, uh, unbelievably shocking, um, appalling, um, um, the images. We're seeing a censored version of them here, but seeing them firsthand must be quite something else. And of course, it's led to greater international outcry over what's happening in Ukraine. Absolutely. I think the Estonian Prime Minister put it very well when she said, what we're looking at now is not the scene from a battlefield. This is, this is a crime scene. And, and we're now witnessing, you know, in Europe, the kind of things that we thought we would never see again. Um, and we have to already first digest what's happened, the looting, the murders, the rapes. I mean, Busha is, is, is a town of about the size of Ennis, where I went to school. So when we talk about like, you know, mass graves of three or 400 people, you know, that's the kind of scale we're talking about. And if that's what we're seeing in the areas which Russia has left, uh, we can only imagine what's going on in those parts of Ukraine where Russian soldiers are still operating, which is a large part of Ukraine, particularly in the southeast. And that's now where Putin has made it clear he's going to uh, focus his, his, his military efforts during the coming weeks and months. Now, we've had strong denials, um, as, as we talked about there with Kira, from Russia on all of this, claiming it's being staged, it's all a hoax to drum up more support from the West, um, from other countries. Have we heard all this before in war situations? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, the Kremlin 
massacred 20,000 Poles when they invaded Poland in 1939. And then when they were, bodies were found, they, they claimed that it was the Germans who had killed them and even planted letters on their bodies uh, and, and, and made a, a generation of Poles actually repeat that in their, in their national history curriculum. I mean, we have been here before. And, and the question now is really what we can do. We have to document what's happening. This is really vitally important <coughs> because this is a crime scene on a mass scale. Even people who are coming here, I know people who are working in Poland uh, dealing with Ukrainian refugees. The people who are dealing with the Ukrainian refugees need psychological help because of the stories they're hearing. And this is only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, critical to all of this, I imagine, is getting those independent investigators in, Harry. Um, journalists have been there. They, 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 have, they have sent back reports. And we, again, we had the, the, the politicians that were there. We had Zelensky there today. But it's the UN calling for those independent investigators to get in there on the ground and see what's happened. Uh, absolutely. There's an old saying uh, that goes, the first casualty of any war is the truth. And sometimes it's very hard to establish what actually transpired and what actually happened. But in the modern context, you know, we're very much aided by technology and technology can show uh, when atrocities have occurred. And this situation in Busha and also Mariupol as well and in, in other Ukrainian cities is very reminiscent of what happened in Srebrenica in 1995 during the Bosnian War uh, when the the, the male population of the town were, were obliterated by uh, their enemies, the Bosnian uh, Serbs. And the, um, the, the, um, the evidence uh, is, is there for all to see and it has been documented, it has been shown. As the MP was saying there, it wasn't just people who were uh, on one side or the other making claims. Uh, independent journalists have already been there, have verified what they have seen have actually shown bodies, some of which have had their hands bound. So at this stage, the evidence is incontrovertible. But I think it's right. I think you do need to get independent investigators, forensic investigators in to establish exactly the extent of what happened. And of course, all of this putting more pressure um, on European leaders, world leaders, to, to support a ban on Russian oil and gas, to do more. Are we likely to see, I know we're hearing about more sanctions, but how, how much do you think now it's going to move towards that embargo uh, on exports from Russia? Well, I, I think the decision will have to be made at a European level. And as we have seen over the past month, some countries are more reluctant than others to impose across the board uh, sanctions. Um, some countries, Germany in particular, uh, relies on Russia for its gas supplies and the uh, cutting off of gas supplies to Germany would have implications for its economy. I'm not trying to single out Germany because other countries like Hungary uh, uh, have expressed reluctance at, at imposing more severe sanctions. I think with every atrocity, the case for more sanctions multiplies and increases. But I think it'll be difficult to get the European Union to agree with one voice uh, to impose such stringent sanctions uh, on Russia at this stage. The sanctions already are relatively stringent, uh, but to go all out, uh, as it were, would take a, a degree of unanimity that we have not seen so far in the European context. Yeah, we, and we do keep hearing Paul McAuliffe from Simon Coveney saying, you know, unilateral decisions have to be made. They have to be made in unison. Um, can't be one country going out in a limb and, and, and taking this call. But at the same time, Ukraine are requesting, for example, asking Ireland to ban any goods coming from from Russia to our ports. Is that something, you know, that should be considered that is being discussed at government level in any capacity? After all, we do have Vladimir Zelensky who will be appearing um, before the houses of the Iraq this, this week. 
Yeah, I suppose t tomorrow, I suppose, listening to um, our European parliamentary colleague there, um, we will we will hear a repeat of that tomorrow uh, from President Zelensky. Um, and I think what has marked Europe's response has been uh, quite a swift uh, response, quite a united response. Things that previously would have been uh, unthinkable have been have been taken, and we need to continue that trajectory as we see more and more images uh, coming out. I agree with all of the other panelists that um, we have to document and, and investigate. It's very hard to do that in 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 the context of actually defending your country and defending uh, your people. Uh, so we have to make sure that whatever. Whatever sanctions we put in place, whatever measures we put in place, um, hurt uh, the Russian government and the Russian regime and don't uh, actually end up backfiring and hurting European citizens more. And that's a very delicate balance. Um, and as Harry says, we are not as dependent on, on, Russia, on Russian gas, but there are countries uh, that are, and there will be cost of living uh, impacts in all of that. That being said, Ireland is one of the countries who are calling for stronger action uh, arising in advance of this, but arising from this also. Louise, do you think that's right, that, that, that there should be stronger action? Would you go with what the government is saying, that they would like to see, um, you know, as a, as a member state, uh, tougher sanctions on Russia and banning all Russian exports. Would Sinn Féin agree with that? Well, I think uh, absolutely we need to uh, we need to up the ante and we need to we need to have stronger sanctions. I think I think it was about two weeks ago there was a, a Russian ship heading for Dublin port and uh, my, my former colleague Karen O'Loughlin, uh, who's an official with SIPTU, had called on Eamon Ryan uh, to take steps to avert that from actually docking. And I think that's that's evidence that that workers want that they don't want to be handling those goods. And I think that's something that certainly uh, I would like to see the government pushing really really strongly for at European level. There's massive value in Europe acting together and collectively on this, but we also need to see our government at the table demanding that uh, that we uh, increase the sanctions and that we increase the pressure and make sure that it is felt in Moscow. That has to, it has to be okay. felt there. But do you know this sort of counter argument that if you if you do that, then it's going whatever whatever happens is going to hurt us is going to hurt um, people in EU member states as well. Is that I think something the, achieving that balance? Is that to, something that you would say, be, yes, no, we have to do this? The focus has to be on moving towards peace, on forcing those negotiations and those discussions that will bring about a peace. There has to be a peaceful yeah. end to this. This has to, won't be resolved until there is dialogue and discussion and whatever it is that it takes to create the conditions for that has to be done. And should the Russian ambassador be at this, uh, at this dull session? Do you believe he no. should be invited? No. Okay, um, your thoughts on that, Paul? Look, that was a call made by the Ken Corla. We elected Ken Corla to, to represent us. He invited the diplomatic corps. Uh, and my understanding is, is that uh, the Russian ambassador has not accepted that, that, that uh, invitation. Do you think it was appropriate to invite him? I think I think it's appropriate for the Cancorda to take decisions he feels in terms of of how he manages the doll. I'm not I'm not going to criticise the Cancorda. The diplomatic corps were were invited. In fact, if the Russian ambassador was there and he heard directly from uh, from President Zelensky, if he heard the strength of the arguments uh, from Irish politicians across across the board, I don't think that is there's any harm in that. The Russian ambassador being there does not in any way, and I don't think anybody should draw any inference from it that anybody in the chamber tomorrow would support what Putin, Putin is doing. But I, th in I any think way. the focus was on the fact that there will be members of the Ukrainian community there. I think it was more for, for them that people had 
uh, the reaction that they did. It's it's very good that he will not be there because I think that the, certainly the members of the Ukrainian community I heard on the radio today, what they were saying was that they did not want him there. I absolutely respect the right of the Count Corlett to order the business of the doll 100%. But I think that when once we heard from those people themselves and about the impact that it would it have probably, on them, I think it was important that, it was, that he is not there. It was probably a relief, Wednesday. Harry, for government that he didn't accept that invitation. Yeah, the 45... Uh, Diplomatic missions responded by close of business today and Yuri Filatov, the Russian ambassador, wasn't one of them. And the Count Corley didn't specifically invite him. I think the protocol of the Oireachtas is that all diplomatic missions are invited as a matter of course. And we haven't broken off diplomatic relations with Russia yet, so he was entitled to be invited, I think, for uh, pragmatic reasons and expedient reasons, uh, Mr. Filatov uh, declined mm. tonight. And I think that's just as well. Um, Louise's colleague, Porrick McLaughlin, actually had written to all the other parties tonight asking for the invitation to be rescinded. And there was going to be a move to try and rescind it tomorrow. In, in any case. Um, Donica, just on, on where, you know, Louise mentioned about peace talks. Uh, and, and now we have these, these war crimes allegations. It's not the first time, of course, we've heard about war, war crimes allegations, um, um, you know, on, on Russia's part. But where does this leave the peace talks and, and any idea that there may be a ceasefire here? I think there's a widespread consensus that until Vladimir Putin grabs the territory that he went into Ukraine to, to grab, he's not going to be genuinely interested in any peace process or negotiating process. And he, at the beginning, three days before the war was announced, or of course the special military operation, as you've mystically called in Russia, um, he recognized Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states. Now, they only controlled a third of Donetsk and Luhansk when the war began. That's why Mariupol is the focus of so much attention. It's in Donetsk region. They will not give that up. They haven't got it yet, but they, they won't give it up. And until they get those territories, I don't think there'll be any serious peace talks on behalf of the Russians. Do you think it all comes back to those regions, essentially, that we're hearing from the UK uh, foreign ministry that the idea that what Russia wants to do now is consolidate and reorganise and get themselves focused back in that region, moving away from Kyiv. It's a change of tactics, but it doesn't. They still hold the option of coming back to Kyiv. They they simply miscalculated in terms of a simultaneous attack. They may be now just going for sequential attacks. They lost seven generals and maybe up to fifteen thousand troops in five weeks. That was unsustainable. So they had to change tack, but. They are still there. And I, I go back to, I think the, we should be taking our lead here from what the Ukrainians are telling us. That Ukrainian MP mentioned two things. They need those sanctions on oil and gas. The Lithuanians went from 100% dependency to 0% and the Latvians did in the last couple of weeks. Um, they need weapons because we were being told before that giving Ukrainians weapons to defend themselves was escalating the conflict. We see what happens now when Ukrainians aren't able to defend themselves. Do you think that would themselves. have helped the situation in Busha if, if there were... If they, if they were better armed, that's country. what President Zelensky said today. So I would take my lead from him because I think he knows the situation on the ground better than we do here. Okay, and as for the sanctions, do you think they'll make an impact on, on, on Vladimir Putin's decision making? Well, look, we contribute in the European Union hundreds of billions of euro every, every day to, the, to, to Putin's machine. And that's where they make most of their money. Russia is not a big economy. I've made this point many times. Their economy is more or less the size of Italy or France. Uh, but most of it comes from oil and gas and it's Europe that's the main customer. This is a drug cartel with tanks and we are the, we are the addicts. 
here in Europe. And we've got to get off this addiction. It was a Faustian pact that was made decades ago to get into this notion of cheap Russian gas, but it's now costing us. And it's not even costing us. We're talking about just higher fuel prices. The cost is in Ukrainian lives. Okay, we will be uh, talking more about that, um, about energy indeed. My thanks to Donico back on. Uh, Harry, Paul and Louise are staying with me. After the break, we take a look at the latest UN climate report, which says it's now or never if the world is to stave off a climate disaster. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's now or never. It's the stark warning from the United Nations as it releases its landmark climate change report. In a desperate sounding call to action, the IPCC has said the planet is sleepwalking to a climate catastrophe and a substantial... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Financial reduction in fossil fuel use is needed now, along with widespread electrification, improved energy efficiency and use of alternative fuels such as hydrogen. UN Secretary General pulled no punches earlier. We are on a fast track to climate disaster. Major cities underwater, unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, widespread water shortages, the extinction of a million species of plants and animals, and this is not fiction or exaggeration. It is what science tells us will result from our current energy policies. Harry McGee, Paul McAuliffe and Louisa Riley are still here with me. And I'm joined by Cara Gustenberg, Assistant Professor of Environmental Policy at UCD. You're very welcome along to the programme. Let's start with that major warning that's come from the UN. Indeed, these warnings are quite familiar now. 
What do you take from this latest report? What's new? Yeah, this one was a bit of an emotional roller coaster for an environmental scientist to read because on the one hand, it's an admission of failure saying that since 1990, globally greenhouse gas emissions have increased 54%. So in all the time we've been trying to decrease emissions, they've actually been rising at a huge rate. Uh, and then saying we're very likely to exceed this idea of the 1.5 degree safe limit of warm warming, which means that low-lying countries like Bangladesh Bangladesh and the South Pacific Islands are really impacted by flooding and sea level rise and also our towns and cities here in Ireland that are that are close to the coast. Mm. You're holding the government to account on all the decisions that we're making in order to tackle climate change um, as, as part of the group, the oversight group on, 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 on climate change. How do you think we're doing so far? It's a mixed bag, I think. There's a lot of really good things happening, and certainly this government has been tackling climate change in a way that no previous government has, but yet Ireland is one of the countries where emissions have been going up, and in the IPCC report, they said that there are 18 countries where over the last 10 years emissions have been going down, and those are places like the United Kingdom, the USA, Germany, France, all of which have shown that they can reduce emissions without affecting their economic growth and their economic bottom line, and yet we haven't been doing that. So even though we're starting to see some actions and some investment, it's not happening at the scale that the IPCC report says it needs to. Yeah, what, what are we doing that's positive? Because, you know, people will, will wonder, actually, what's happening, because like, we're seeing all the cars out in the road, we're seeing the traffic, we're seeing the congestion, the emissions you're talking about, they're going up. Yeah, well, some of the Where things... The positives. Yeah, some of the things we're doing, small things like the changes that have been made recently in VRT on, on vehicles have actually changed the interest in electric vehicles. So finally, we're starting to see, uh, you know, less interest in high emission vehicles that are heavily taxed and more interest in, in, in low emission vehicles. And also some of that is because of things like the energy crisis that we're experiencing. But the Climate Action Plan prioritizes energy retrofit for houses, removing uh, households from fuel poverty, a lot more cycling and sustainable transport. So I think those things are starting to happen, but very slowly. And the implementation is the real challenge now. Implementation is the big challenge, isn't it, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Kara's right. Uh, the government are taking strong action, but we are also making up for uh, many years of inaction. Uh, and it, there's so many different tools, uh, I suppose, that, that could be used here. Like obviously the retrofitting programme uh, is a significant measure, uh, and particularly for those people who are on fuel allowance, you know, there's effectively a free scheme under the Better Energy Warmer Home Scheme that allows people to do uh, retrofitting. There's up to 80% of a grant uh, for those people who don't qualify uh, uh, for, for that scheme. And there's many- I'm no, sorry, there is a, there, it, 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 free to retro retrofit yeah, so homes you, in some you, cases. How quickly is that happening? If you if you if you on your own your own home and you're on on the fuel lounge, you can qualify for better energy, warmer homes, including a new uh, expanded version of, of that. Uh, you know there, there is delays. The there like? is delay. Uh, it, it, it differs across the country. You know, in, in my own area, it's a very popular scheme. Uh, we can see delays of over twelve months. Um, mm. But what we need to see is more people skilled in that area, and we've seen Noel Collins uh, work on that. But I think as we ramp up all of these measures, we have to obviously look at the opportunities that are there uh, to, to, to tackle climate action, marine area planning, uh, which is effectively offshore wind. I think is a real game changer for Ireland and could actually move us towards energy independence and towards being a net exporter. That's a really big area. It's not going to happen overnight, but it's something we are making a lot of moves on.
Not going to happen overnight, but something which is coming down the line in May is the carbon tax. We had Micheál Martin out in it today saying in the overall scheme of things, it's not as significant as the political debate around it would suggest. What do you make of that, Louise? Yeah, I was out canvassing tonight in uh, Westbrook and Balbriggan and I was chatting to people on the doors just in relation to how they're managing at the moment. So they are already experiencing a crisis at the moment. And I think what they wanted to see from government is that at the very least, they wouldn't make it worse. Uh, which, you know, in terms of what they have in their pocket and how they're going to be able to heat their homes, feed their families. I think they wanted to see from the government some sense that they understood the depth of the crisis and that at the next opportunity they wouldn't put another tax on top of them. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think, notwithstanding the, the views expressed by some of the people in the, the backbenches of both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, I don't think their leaders are listening to them and they're certainly not listening to people uh, on the streets because people are saying they just can't take any more. They've already modified their behaviour. So, the, you know, yeah. the, the cost of energy has been spiralling out of control. People have already been forced to modify their behaviour. They have already done that. But when you're not providing people with an alternative, it isn't fair to heap another okay. tax on top of it. Uh, Harry, will the government push ahead with this one? Because we are hearing that discontent among uh, backbenchers. We had Michael Ring out over the weekend saying, no, now is not the time. Um, will it go ahead? I, I think it will go ahead. Um, I think it's a red line with the, the Green Party. And the argument that has been used by, and they've been backed up by Micheál Martin and Leo Varadkar, the argument that has been used by the Green Party is that the increases will amount to €1.50 a month in relation to gas bills and heating bills, uh, which isn't very much in the scheme of things. And the money that's raised in carbon tax is going back in terms of helping people with fuel allowance and also with insulation of homes. But they politically, they recognise that that won't cut it with people. As Louise was pointing out, people are up to their necks in, in, it, in, in debt and finding it very difficult. So the government, I think, will realise that if they go ahead with that, they will have to give something, as one minister said it to me tonight, to lance the boil. So they, if, they, if they do increase carbon tax, I think they will try to come up with some other scheme to, to soften the blow, as it were, to alleviate that hardship. Is that what's going to happen, Paul? Yeah, but that's not going to be a new... That's a new, not a new approach. We've taken over €2 billion Euro to address uh, this co yeah, cost what, of living what do you crisis. Think, what do you think but about the carbon? be a specific measure, I think. Yeah, uh, and what do you think on the issue uh, and of and carbon I don't think tax? There are, there are, you know, colleagues within government who, who would say, or certainly within uh, parties of government who wouldn't be happy about it. What do you think? Are you, yeah, are you look, happy about the carbon tax coming in May? I, I think anybody who has people coming into their clinic who knows what's happening in terms of people's household income has to understand that we are in the middle of a fuel cost crisis, absolutely. But in the middle of a fuel cost crisis, you don't abandon the tools you're taking to tackle the climate crisis. We can't listen to the IPPC report at the beginning of this bu bulletin and then ignore it and say that we, 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 can take, we, we can take limited action. And I'm actually really disappointed in Sinn Féin's approach to it because if politicians are actually going to come together, if we're going to take strong action, we need to be climate brave. We need to not lean into right. populist responses. And unfortunately, and I really regret it, Champagne continuously do that on, on well, this issue. Well, let's get the scientific take on it. Cara, what do you think should happen with the carbon tax increase? Yeah, I've always been a proponent of carbon tax for changing behaviour. If we know that the price of fossil fuel is going up, we, we look toward lower carbon technologies. But as Louise said, we are seeing a change in behaviour right now, which is the kind of changes we needed to see. So I would understand if we deferred the carbon tax a little while. But if anyone is proposing to defer it, we need to talk about how we're going to pay for these Absolutely. measures that we desperately 
need right now in terms of insulation and energy retrofit. And we need to communicate to the public where their carbon tax is going because people understand the need to pay for pollution, but we also want to know where that money is going and is it helping us to reduce that pollution? And that is not clear. So there is a communication problem so with government it's interesting right now. What, what, what you're saying, that it, the behavioural change is already happening here, and that's because of the fuel crisis and the cost, I suppose, that people are experiencing already. So that's that's prompting that's a change part of behaviour. Yeah. We're, we're likely to see that continue for some time yeah, to come because we're likely to see prices go up. So do you believe the carbon tax rise should be deferred for, for quite a while? No, I think we need to keep increasing carbon tax, but we do desperately need to insulate homes right now before the next winter. We need to really help people in fuel poverty and the money for that has to come from somewhere. So the question is, if it doesn't come from an increase in the carbon tax, where does it come from? And it needs to come now. And, and, and that is the question that even people who support the deferral of the carbon tax aren't really answering. Would you defer it for May, though? Would you, would you think the government... I think what the government needs to do is look at communicating this. We talk about the need to bring people with us. We talk about the need for citizen engagement. But until people know that that money is being used in a way that really does alleviate fuel poverty and really does get us off of carbon and fossil fuels, I can understand why the optics of this are wrong right now and the sensitivities are so, so delicate. I think it's very clear, though, people do want to play their part. They want to... Uh, they, they understand that there is a climate and biodiversity emergency and they want to do their part but they want to see government doing, doing their part as well so in relation to even a small thing like the uh, micro generation being able to sell that electricity back to the grid that hasn't happened it should have happened we don't have a paper as yet on uh, on the use of hydrogen my colleague Darren O'Rourke has published legislation in this regard so I think people do and I would agree with Cara there, there does need to be very very clear communication with people but I think we need to start from the perspective of people want to do the right thing they want to play their part and certainly that's what they're okay. telling me so you think they if want was, the government if to it was communicated halfway. better Louise you think people would be okay with the carbon tax rise I think at this point I don't think people can handle another increase in the cost of living because they are absolutely put to the pin of their collar. Paul mentioned it earlier, offshore wind energy being um, a, a, a big game changer here and something that could change everything. But are we going about it the right way? Are we doing it quickly enough? You know, Eamon Ryan has sort of put the tenders out or the applications of interest. It's going to private companies. You know, is all of this happening quickly enough and in the right way? Well, I think most of it is going to be operated by private companies just because of the massive sums of capital um, involved. But, I mean, it all takes a huge amount of time. I was very interested in listening to the excerpt from the UN Secretary-General talking about the need for, for alternative, for hydrogen and all, all of these things. But, I mean, in many of those cases, the technology hasn't been sufficiently developed to allow it to be used at scale. And also hydrogen at the moment is extraordinarily, green hydrogen is extraordinarily expensive at the moment. Now, it is being developed, but it won't be developed in, in really until the beginning of the next decade in a meaningful way. When you talk about uh, wind power uh, off the west coast of Ireland, there is huge potential. But the technology for floating turbines hasn't been, it is being developed, but it's still very expensive. And it will be several years uh, before it will be fit for purpose in terms of the west coast of Ireland. Huge logistics, planning issues, takes years. Now, the one thing that the government could do by 2030 is to have uh, the wind farms off the east coast of Ireland, uh, where the banks are shallower and where they can put in permanent turbines, and they can achieve quite a lot there. But again, you're talking about time, uh, planning, legislation, appeals, 
money. I mean, there are so many logistical nightmares but, that it's a very, very the, long and complicated the, 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 the difference in the last the roofs of schools. But the difference in the, in the last 18 months is that the government have actually put in place the Marine Area Area Planning Bill. It's been hanging around for, you know, uh, for many, many years. We've taken actual real action on it. The minister, actually, Minister Dara right. Bryan is the one with responsibility for putting in place the, marine, the, the planning regulator. That'll be done by June. So, like, there are real steps being taken towards this longer-term goal. Briefly, Cara, are we doing any of this quickly enough? Well, no, because marine offshore wind isn't going to happen until 2026, best-case scenario. We know we have to have emissions between now and 2030, so it's just not happening fast enough to meet those targets. OK, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Cara Augustenberg. Harry, Paul and Louise are staying with me as we look at the cost of living and what you can do to get the best deals amid the inflation crunch. Cabinet is to hear plans aimed at offsetting the cost of living. Among the reported ideas being brought forward by Eamon Ryan, take shorter showers and drive less. Harry, Paul and Louise are still here with me and I'm also joined by Paul Merriman, financial planning expert at askpaul.ie. And Paul, we're hearing this advice. Um, Eamon Ryan is to bring forward these, uh, a public awareness campaign and, and proposals around that. Easy to do measures, he says. Simple changes like taking a shorter shower, as we mentioned, then turning thermostat thermostats down by a degree, um, boiling enough water as required, say, for a kettle, um, and emphasis on using appliances at off-peak times. What do you think of these tips? It, look, in theory, the tips, I think everybody knows the tips. I think everybody is aware of them. I don't think they need to be told by a politician, especially when we're at the current situation of the cost of living going so high. Uh, so I think it's probably come across as being quite patronising to the average person. And I, and I mean that wholeheartedly. I mean, yes, everyone knows that, you know, if you took shorter showers and you de de decrease your thermometer, you know, you're going to save. Um, but they need more from politicians. They, they, they need way more from politicians than telling people that stuff, you know. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's helped in any way whatsoever. What do they need? Um, they need a lot of measures coming in, a lot of emergency measures coming in in relation to looking at the VAT and the energy bills for argument's sake. Now again, government are kind of hampered here from the EU have to bring that in rather than the government. Um, but, you know, I think a clear communication on what's going on. I mean, from a government point of view, they are hamstrung what they can do, but they need to communicate better. I think we've only seen the start of this as well. I think as we go through the summer months in towards the winter months, people are going to feel the pinch an awful lot more. Um, so, yeah, I think they're going to rely on government. The government are going to have to rely on the EU uh, here to, to do something uh, because we're very, very... And we haven't even looked at mortgage interest rates and inflation. Like the, the, the big measure here to curb inflation and the cost of is going to be an increase in interest rates. So it's going to increase people's mortgages. That's actually coming. So, you know, putting uh, half the kettle in is not going to really do anything. You know, it genuinely isn't. I think we're on the cusp of like something really, really dangerous happen here with inflation and cost of living. Um, unless the EU step in, you know, that's all the government can do. I mean, you know, Harry, and we're getting these sort of cost-saving measures and proposals that are being put forward by Eamon Ryan, um, but no additional financial measures we're hearing that, that'll help people in this current situation. No, not at, at uh, present. So they're kind of practical measures, and I'd agree with Paul that they, they can sound uh, patronising. You know, I mean, you need the right person to communicate a message and perhaps a, a minister, senior minister with the government is never the right person to communicate uh, such uh, measures, especially when they mean that people have to, uh, you know, 
implement kind of domestic austerity measures. I mean, one of the practical pieces of advice in the Paul Averter there would be for people perhaps to try to fix their mortgages now before interest rates do go up. Uh, they are, their interest rates are still relatively low and if they can fix for five years, uh, that would make a huge difference because there's no doubt about it, uh, interest rate increases for mortgages are coming down the line. They're already happening in the US uh, and uh, the EU is going to follow suit very, very quickly indeed. Um, Louise, you know, the government will say, I mean, key to all of this is protecting the most vulnerable, insulating them against the rising cost of living. Are the government doing that? Well, you know, we can't look just at the energy and fuel crisis in isolation. Um, young workers, families in the state already pay the highest, uh, some of the highest rents in Europe. Their childcare costs are absolutely crippling. So people were already under an awful lot of pressure in relation to the cost of living. And now on top of it, they are being forced to make a decision and choose between heating and eating, uh, heating their homes and being able to eat and feed their families. So that is, a, that is a big issue, but we came to this, and there are certainly global factors at play, but we came to this with our domestic factors already people. So when your rent is crucifying you, what you actually want from the government is that they will freeze your rent and they will put a month's rent back into your pocket by a refundable tax credit. We need them to cut the cost of childcare that parents are paying mm. because that's like paying a second mortgage and that one also isn't fixed. So God knows what's going to happen if the government don't make a serious intervention soon with regard to childcare costs. And on top of that... But they've said they, they are have... taking action on childcare costs, mm -hmm. but that... That does all take take time. And Pascal Donoghue has ruled out another mini budget or any um, more financial no, we, decisions. There's no disputing that we need a mini budget, mm -hmm. but what we also need to see is that they would immediately uh, cut the uh, the excise on home heating oil. So if you live in my constituency. Previously, when you bought a fill of oil for your tank, it was about 980. It's now gone up to just under 2,000 euros. That's in the space of about 12 right. months. So they could well, improve that by 100 euros if they wanted to. They could have supported the Sinn Féin motion when we brought it to the Dáil, but they know that that can be done. They know that, they are, they know that there are levers they can pull. And what's disappointing people, they don't expect the government to do everything. They do expect them to do more. Uh, should the government be doing more here, realistically, Paul? Like when we're facing, you know, we, you, you would know, you would hear from your constituents the crisis that people are facing, the difficulties they're facing. Is the government doing enough? Well, let, let's be clear about one thing first. Uh, having a shorter share is not the government's response um, to a cost of living well, crisis. Well, that is the response. That, 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 so, the senior minister said that today, Paul. Other, that, other is the other, that is not the response. Is and it's a caricature of the response. It is not the response. Well, let me tell you what the response is. The €200 Euro that's landing in many people's bills uh, th this year that was announced by the government, that's a real measure. That's not a shorter share. The increase in the... Free, the increase in one the in of course, of of course, of course it will be clear. And all of the measures that all of the measures that we take um, will, will be looked by increasing costs because of international factors and so on. But it's not fair to say that recommendations to have a shorter share is the government's response. The fuel allowance, the tax reductions, the to be Paul, fair, I want to take the fuel allowance for example. It's due to expire on Friday. Um, should it be extended? 
Well, my, my view is, and as, as Harry said, there will be negotiations around um, the implementation of the, of, of the carbon tax and other measures will, will have to be made. The government all along has, made, has taken steps to try and e ease the burden. And we also have to be very careful that we don't turn an international inflation, inflationary uh, cycle into a domestic one. We have to be very conscious of that. I do welcome, for example, Michael McGrath's uh, announcement that we should have uh, discussions around the National Wage Agreement because I think that's absolutely something that, that we need to do and we need to have a... All, uh, we have all the stakeholders need to come together to make sure that we don't go back to a situation in the 70s where inflation became something we were we were chasing. All right, okay, uh, but not a, a, a renegotiation, I think, of that pay agreement is, is what they're saying around that. Uh, Paul, practically, like, there are some measures like the, the, you know, using more electricity at night rather than daytime yeah. on, on a very... Uh, practical and realistic footing, will that make a difference to a lot of people in their plans as they currently stand, if they're paying the <coughs> same unit price yes. across the day? Yes, of course. If you're going to use less, you're going to be using electricity smarter at even time. You know, it's definitely going to bring your bill down, but nowhere near enough to combat the price inflation that's there. Um, in relation to what government can do, look, the €200 Euro allowance that's going into everybody's electricity, we should be looking after people that need it the most rather than a kind of blanket everybody getting €200 Euro off their ESB or electricity bills. That just doesn't really make sense to me from a consumer point of view and a citizen. That doesn't, like, there's a lot of people that don't need that money and there's a lot of people that do need that money. So I think we need to be more targeting our approach or the government needs to be more targeting and who they're helping here. Um, but look, yes, if you're going to reduce your costs, you're going to reduce your energy, it's going to reduce your costs. Um, but like I said, you look at any paper over the last year, nearly every weekend you'll find ways to save energy. The public notice and they're being communicated on a regular basis. They don't need a senior politician saying that to them. They need clear and needs to have money going the right direction. That's what should be happening. Yeah, the more targeted approach, I mean, it's, it's a very fair point. A lot of people, that 200 euro won't make a difference. But for, for people who need it most, it's actually not enough. No, um, and there is a, an inherent uh, injustice there. The government has argued that to, 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 to uh, graduate it or to give it to those that need it most would have, would have been far more complicated to achieve. But there is an injustice there. <clears throat> I think it would have been, but they, they could have done it nonetheless. But the difficulty politically with it as well is even those who, uh, who don't need it, actually many of those feel entitled to it. And many of those who are angry at the, at the, at the rise in energy prices, you know, uh, it, it, they're not thinking as much about other people, but thinking about their own situation. And we've seen that not just here, but in France and also uh, in, in Spain. But uh, the government do need to, uh, as Louise said, to target. And I think one of the things that might be uh, in the offering for the government is to extend uh, the fuel poverty the, allowance the fuel beyond allowance, that Friday which is due four to or five weeks. Due to expire Friday. We'll see where that goes. That is it from us, um, from all my panel, all the late team here. Good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 